Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Would you please take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue this morning with are walking through some very deep, infinite and transcendent truths about the very person of God Himself, truths that we cannot hope to fully understand, but truths which God has revealed in part to us because He wants us to understand and believe the parts that He has revealed. We are looking at God's very purposes in salvation in this great 8th chapter of Romans. And we've spent uh, the last two weeks looking at Romans chapter 8, 29. In Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, Paul outlines God's eternal purposes related to salvation by giving us five great words, five great statements about what God's purposes in salvation are, how God goes about the salvation process in the lives of individuals. And what we have looked at in the last two weeks from Romans 8.29 is two of those great words. Let me just read Romans, just for context, I'm going to begin in verse 28. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, first great word, as I talked to you about last week, synonymous term with election, We looked at that extensively. For those whom God foreknew, number one. Number two, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those are the two words we looked at for the last two weeks, foreknowledge or election and predestination. We saw from the Word of God how God in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, chose those whom He would set His special love upon, His saving, lavish love upon the elect. And that He then, in eternity past, instantaneous with that decree, that decree from eternity, He also followed that with predetermining their destiny so that the love that He had determined and the choice that He had made of those that He was going to save, He predetermined their eternal destiny that it would be with Him in heaven. Election and predestination or foreknowledge and predestination. Now, if you were not a part of those last two weeks, uh, this is what we're going to say this morning is really a cooperation, a complement 
to those. And so it would be helpful for you to go to either to our website or to our church app. You can get that on your smartphone and listen, download and listen to those messages. But what we come to this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And the next great word. It says in verse 30, And those whom God predestined, He also called. There's the word. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What we're going to look at today is the calling. The call of God. That's a part of His salvation purposes, His salvation work. In order to understand specifically what the call of God is here, we need to take a wider angle view so that we're not confused and see that in Scripture there are two calls of God regarding salvation. There is a general call. I'm going to show you that really briefly in a moment. And then I'm going to show you extensively that there is a special call. What I'm calling this morning an unconquerable call. First of all, the general call. The general call to salvation. Jesus told us, that we're to go into all the world as His followers and preach the gospel, that we're to go and make disciples of all nations. We're to present the good news of Jesus Christ to all of mankind. That's the general call. Jesus said, to those who are burdened and heavy laden, come to Me and I'll give you rest. The general call. Jesus said, stood up at one of the great feasts there in Jerusalem, and He said, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to Me. Receive from Me the waters of life. It's the general call. Scripture says, whosoever will may come. It's the general call. The proclamation of the gospel. The sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ. Every time that I get up here in the pulpit, I'm giving the general call. Proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done to provide salvation. We're to be doing that as followers of Christ. Across the fence in the backyard over lunch with a coworker, or to be offering the good news, general call. But then there is another call. There is a special call. There is what I'm calling an unconquerable call. Theologians would term that an effectual call. A call that effects that for which it calls, or accomplishes, secures that for which it calls. But in order to understand that, this is really critical what I'm about to say here. If you're going to understand this unconquerable call, 
You have to understand something as a precursor truth for it to come to your understanding with, which, with the force with which God's Word presents it. And here's what you have to understand. You have to understand the condition of mankind unsaved. You have to understand the reality of what our situation is prior to coming to Christ, prior to being made righteous through the work of Christ. Because it is only when you understand the reality of who we are before salvation that you will see why it had to be an unconquerable and effectual, uh, absolutely securing and life-giving call. So what is man's condition without Christ? Let me just give you several of the descriptions. I don't have time to do a lot of these, but there are so many places we could go to in Scripture, both in the Old and in the New Testament. First of all, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Paul here is writing about describing individuals who are unsaved. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In that verse, Paul makes a categorical statement about every unsaved person, and he says that they are hostile to God. He says that they don't submit to God's law. In fact, what's true about them in God's law? He says, It is impossible. They cannot submit to the law of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He wrote to the believers in Corinth, Paul did, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. This is talking about an unsaved person, referring to them as a natural person, a person that is not alive in the biblical Understanding of that phrase spiritually. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul said that a person that is unsaved is absolutely incapable of understanding the truth so that they can be saved incapable of it, a categorical statement again about their lost, their fallen condition. So, kind of put that together in sequence. If a person unsaved cannot understand the truth, if that is an impossibility to them, then they cannot have the faith to believe in the one who is the truth, right? If they can't understand the truth, they certainly can't believe in Him who is the truth. And if they don't believe or can't believe in Him who is the truth, how then can they be saved? The answer is they cannot be saved because you have to believe in order to be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthian church, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Again, description here. Another way that the New Testament describes the person that is without Christ. And he says here that that person has been blinded. Blinded by whom? What does the Scripture say? It says the God of this world or the God of this age. Who is that church? That's Satan. That's Satan. Again, let's put that thought together in just kind of a logical, reasonable, deductive process here. Is there anyone in themselves, in their humanity, that is a match for Satan? The answer is no, absolutely not. And the problem is that everyone that is lost in sin, they are blinded by the power of Satan. So follow that out in order for them to come to the place where they can see who? See the person of Christ because what does Satan blind them to? He blinds them and keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan blinds unbelievers so that they cannot look at Christ and say, that's God. Right there, He is God. So if the enemy has blinded unbelievers, and if we are no match for the enemy, it's going to take someone more powerful than the enemy to break the spell, to break the blindness of the enemy so that we can see and understand who Jesus is so that we can put our faith in Him and believe. Do you see our problem? It's hopeless for us in our power. We are incapable of understanding. We are blind to the reality of who Christ is. We have a power over us that keeps us in blindness unless someone comes in more powerful than Satan himself to break the blindness. See, God views, again, many other verses that I could give you, Ephesians, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. See, the unsaved condition is a condition that has the inability to understand because it takes spiritual reality to understand. And because of sin, we're spiritually dead. That does not mean non-existent spiritually. That means separated and shut out from the presence of God. And the truth we're talking about is truth of God. So if we are spiritually dead, shut out from the presence of God, then that means that we cannot possibly understand the truth of God that saves. That's one way the Bible describes it. Another way is that we are dead. We are dead in sin. Something has to make us alive. We are blind to the truth. Something has to give us sight. We are, here's another way, we are enemies of God. 
Something has to take away that rebellion in the heart and that enmity toward God. We have a heart of stone. That's another way Scripture describes it. We, prior to salvation, we have a heart of stone. What can a stone feel? What can a stone see? What can a stone sense? Nothing. It has to be changed to a heart of flesh. Jeremiah says that. You see, we have a serious problem pre-salvation. An insurmountable problem. That is true of every single person prior to salvation or who is not saved. It was my reality prior to salvation. Paul, toward the end of his life, he's standing before King Agrippa. He's on trial. And he is explaining to the king how he met Jesus Christ and how Jesus saved him and how Jesus gave him a commission to go to the Gentiles and proclaim to them his truth, the truth of Jesus. And he tells the King Agrippa that Christ had given him this commission to go preach to the Gentiles. And why did Christ give him the commission the commission to go preach to the Gentiles, Acts 26, 18, he tells the king in this verse, he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you see what he says there? My commissioning by Jesus was to go and proclaim the truth so that their eyes would be opened so that those blinded eyes under the power of the enemy that could not see could have a miracle done to them and they could see so that they could receive. So, the reality of our condition is, prior to Christ, we are unable to understand the spiritual truth of salvation. We are blinded and unable to see the person of Jesus Christ as being God in the flesh, our Savior. We are dead to spiritual things. We are enemies of God in rebellion. We are Bond, and here's another way the Scripture describes it. We are in bondage to sin, enslaved, enchained, no hope of getting out. That's our condition. And that is the platform. That's the understanding that then comes and sets up the reality of what the special call of God is, why there has to be, why there must be, why the only answer for salvation is that something has to happen to take a person dead and blind and an enemy and in bondage and bring them life and bring them sight and bring them freedom and bring them a heart toward God and remove that rebellion and give it 
a passion for the truth. Something has to happen like that in order for salvation to be a reality. And that something is the call, the special call, the unconquerable call. So what I want to do now is I want to just give you a biblical foundation for this unconquerable call of God that accomplishes effectively and every time the salvation for which it calls. And what I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you several verses and these are just a small, small fraction of what could be given. Start with the words of Jesus, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus says to the Jews, those who are following Him, that are listening to Him teach, He says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let me just show you three great truths in that one statement. Jesus says, the Father gives certain people to Jesus. Do you see that? The Father gives certain people to Jesus. Number two, everyone that the Father gives is going to come to Jesus. Everyone. Does everyone come to Jesus? No, not everyone comes to Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is, everyone whom the Father gives to Him comes. So if everyone doesn't come, that means the Father gives some to Jesus, not all. And everyone He gives comes. And then thirdly, everyone who comes, Jesus will never cast out. A few verses later, Jesus is arguing with the Jews they don't like that statement. And Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's the call. No one, not one person can come to me, Jesus says, to be saved unless the Father extends a call to that person, unless the Father draws them to Jesus. And what happens to everyone that the Father draws? John 6, part B, Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone. If the Father calls, they come. And what I'm going to do, the promise Jesus said, categorical statement, I'm going to raise him up at the last day. So, explicit statement. It's impossible for anybody to come to Jesus unless the Father calls. An implied statement that everyone that the Father draws comes. And another explicit statement, everyone the Father calls is raised up on the final day. They are given eternal life. Everyone. John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is referring to unsaved people 
who are yet going to be saved. And what he says, he already calls them his sheep. Why? Here's why. Because he knows that everyone that the Father elected and predestined in eternity past is one of his sheep that the Father is giving to him. And everyone that the Father gives, he draws. And everyone that the Father draws comes. And everyone that comes is raised up at the last day and given eternal life. It's the guarantee. There's no falling through the cracks there. You see how different this is than a general universal call? There is a universal general call, but there is a call that to everyone to whom it comes, it accomplishes that for which it calls. It draws them to the Son. It accomplishes their salvation. It makes them one of Jesus' sheep. He continues, John chapter 10, 26 to 29. Again, he's in this dialogue, these hard statements that he's making to these men that are gathered around him. He says in John 10, 26, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Do you hear what that says right there? He is saying that it's not belief that makes you a part of God's flock. It's being a part of God's flock that gives you belief. We often get that order reversed. But you do not believe because you're not a part. You're not among my sheep. In other words, if you were among my sheep, you would believe. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. See what Jesus says here? He says, the Father, verse 29, He gives me sheep. He gives me certain people that are to be mine He gives them to me, and every one that He gives, Jesus said, verse 28, I give them eternal life. Everyone. And no one can take that away. No one. And those to whom the Father does not give to the Son, Verse 26, they will not believe. Why? Because they're not of his sheep. Acts 13. Paul is preaching to the Gentiles at Antioch. He is sharing with them the good news, the saving news of Jesus Christ. Telling them that through Christ, They as well, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, they as well can receive the gift of Christ unto salvation. And it says in Acts 13, 
verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That means they were rejoicing in the truth that God had proclaimed in His Word, that Paul was proclaiming in his teaching. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I'm going to read that a different way to make emphasis. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Is that what it says? No, it says the reverse. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. First there is the appointment, then there is the belief. The appointment is the election of God in eternity past. That in a moment of time in history, when God extends the call, goes from an appointment to belief and accomplishes the salvation that it calls for. The unconquerable call of God. Paul goes to Europe, preaches the gospel first time in Europe. He's outside of a city. He's by a river. There's some ladies there that are worshipers of God. And he begins teaching them about Jesus Christ, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a woman named Lydia there. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Then listen to what it says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. If the Lord hadn't opened Lydia's heart, Lydia wouldn't have paid attention to what was said by Paul because Lydia couldn't have understood the spiritual truth because she was spiritually dead. She had to be quickened. She had to be made alive. She had to have something radical change in her so that she could see where she had been blind, so that she could have life where she had been dead, so that she could have understanding where she had had none so she could have the enmity against God removed, so that that rebellion was gone, so that she could then accept the offer of salvation. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in his first letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1-2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul said, first of all, that every Christian at Corinth was a Christian at Corinth because God had sent to them a call. The reason that they called upon the Lord is because the Lord had called them. But then he extends it beyond the church at Corinth and he says here, he teaches here that everyone who ever 
calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation, really genuinely makes that call to God for salvation, that they have first and foremost been called by God. The reason that they call is because God first called them. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews penned about God's unconquerable call to salvation. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the writer of Hebrews is saying there's a new covenant. A new covenant that has been established by Jesus Christ. And who is that new covenant for? Who is saved under that new covenant? It is those who are called. Only those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And everyone who has called, that's the implication here, receives the promised eternal inheritance. It is the call of God that is effective, that is unconquerable, that is irresistible, that accomplishes that for which it is sent. So, ready to answer the question. In summary, what is the unconquerable call of God into salvation? It is what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. Let me just read those two verses again. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those God foreknew or elected and predestined, that's eternity past before the foundation of the world But that had to become a reality in history in a moment of time for everyone that he had elected, foreknew, predestined. And so what does God do? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So do you see the sequence here? Everyone, everyone, that God foreknows, that He chooses to enter into a special relationship with, He predestines everyone because all those foreknown or elected are predestined. That's step one. Step two, everyone He predestines, He also does what? He calls. And everyone He calls, He does what? He justifies. And everyone He justifies, He does what? He glorifies. That takes you in salvation from eternity past to eternity future. Election and predestination, eternity past. Moment of time, the call in history. The call that achieves and accomplishes justification in history and then throughout all of eternity future, glorification. 
You see, the saving purposes of God run from eternity past to eternity future. And right in the middle of that is the call, the unconquerable, the effectual call of God every time that accomplishes what it is sent for so that every elected, predestined individual is also called and all those who are called are also justified and glorified. Nobody falls through the cracks in Romans 8, 29 to 30. Nobody. So, The effectual call, the unconquerable call is this. It is when God, through the working of His Holy Spirit, comes to those whom He has elected and predestined and He sends forth the gospel message, the good news of Jesus to them in such a powerful way that it regenerates. It brings to life where there had been death. It brings sight where there had been blindness. It removes the enmity and the rebellion a heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh so that they can now understand the truth of the saving message. They can see and believe who Jesus is and that look, that understanding, that grace becomes effectual. It becomes unconquerable in their life so that they then act upon what God has done and they receive the salvation that Jesus gives to them through the person of the Spirit. So you say, well, what part then does faith play? Do we have to believe? Absolutely, we have to believe. Here's the question. Where does faith come from? Where does faith come from? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift. It's not something that you conjure up in your own humanity pre-salvation so that you can be saved. It is a gift of God. Hebrews 12, 2, that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, You see, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We're not the founder of our own faith. Jesus is the founder of our faith. So faith is a gift. Do you know what else Scripture says? It says that repentance is a gift. What is repentance? Repentance is a a change of mind toward the things of God. It is a heart that is broken over sin that now has a principle of life in it that is moving toward God instead of away from God. But where does repentance come from? Do we need to repent? Yes, absolutely. But how do we come to the place of repentance? Listen to what Paul tells his protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
God is the giver of repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, Peter here is sharing about what God had done among the Gentiles through his preaching. He's reporting it to the church. And listen to what they say. 11, Acts 11:18. 11, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance. Praise God, they said. Wow, shocking reality for them. This is not just for the Jews. This is for the Gentiles too. And praise God that He has saw fit to grant them repentance. Folks, every good gift comes from God. The gift of faith comes from God. The gift of repentance comes from God. Now why? Why? Because prior to salvation, we are in this depraved state, this blind, dead, non-understanding, antagonistic, rebellious enmity toward God in bondage to sin, hopeless of ever securing our own salvation, not even understanding our own condition, not wanting the salvation that Christ offers. But then comes the call. And what the call does is it brings life. It brings a relationship where there is enmity. It brings sight where there is blindness. It brings understanding where there had been no understanding. It shows Jesus as being God in the flesh the Savior of mankind. And that picture that is painted by the Spirit of God is so beautiful on the person of Jesus Christ that everyone that is called by the faith that has been given to them and the repentance that has been given to them through the regenerating work of the Spirit, they turn from their sins, they accept Jesus as their Savior. That is the unconquerable call. You see, what Paul said there in 2 Timothy and in Acts eleven eighteen is that God not only gives salvation but He gives the prerequisites of salvation. He gives the faith and the repentance, the life and the sight and the understanding coupled with faith and repentance so that that person can believe and be saved. Do they have to believe? Yes, they have to believe. But their belief is enabled by the power of God. Now remember, what Paul is teaching here, all of Romans chapter 8, is intended to secure in the heart of the believer the security 
the guarantee of their salvation that once they have left the condemnation of God, they are never going to be in the state of condemnation again. Everyone who is truly saved is truly secure. That is what he is seeking to prove here in the 8th chapter of Romans, starting in verse 1, and he's coming to a great crescendo as he gets to the end of this chapter, as he's been showing over and over again in a myriad of ways how it is undeniable that everyone that is truly saved is eternally secure. And he comes here in Romans 8, 29, and 30, and he gives this great, basis for the security of the believer by showing this that the work of salvation is all of God so that if it is all of God if you did not do anything to secure it for yourself if it's resting upon the person and the character of God and his eternal purposes then here's what you can take to the bank of eternity that it's always going to be the same once salvation has happened, it's secure because our God is immutable. He's unchangeable. And once He has made a decision and accomplished that work, nobody but nobody is going to change it because He is the all-powerful God. Do you see how Paul is using this to build that security in the believer? Not to give false security to the unbeliever, but to build true security in the true believer. Now, I wished I had time because that's half the message. I wanted so badly, I, I'm really concerned about giving this in two parts. I have to do that because they have to complement one another. Because there are legitimate questions that come to our mind like I've been answering the last few Sundays. I wanted to have time at the end of this message to answer some very legitimate um, objections that come to our mind. Well, if that's true, if it's an unconquerable call or an irresistible call, then I got some serious questions about that. Now, I'm going to be able to answer those next Sunday. So I'm encouraging you to just pour over the truth that's been shared, go to the Word of God, look and see. Don't take my word for it. Go to the Word of God yourself and look and see if there really is this consistent theme throughout Scripture of this effective, this unconquerable call of God that always achieves the salvation for which it calls. And then next week what we'll do is we'll complement this message by looking at the examples of salvation from some individuals in Scripture and then answering some reasonable questions or objections to help solidify this truth. Would you please stand? But I want to say this to you as we close. Worship team, would you come? Jesus Christ and His salvation has been presented to you. That He is the very Son of God. That the only way that you're going to get to heaven is you're going to come through Jesus Christ. You're going to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. 
He is the only one that's paid the price for your sin, and he is the only sacrifice that the Father will accept. So you have to come to the end of yourself. See, that's part of what the gospel is doing here. It is trying to bring us to the end of ourselves, so that we put no trust whatsoever in anything that we can do to save ourselves. We have to come broken and guilty before God and say, Jesus, you and you alone can save me. And so I am asking for that free gift of salvation. I'm praying that the call of God, the effectual, the unconquerable call of God is going out to some of you this morning for that salvation. As I preach the general call that the Spirit of God is speaking, the special call, the unconquerable call to some of you this morning. Let's pray. If that's you this morning, I'm just encouraging you to pray a prayer something like this, Lord Jesus Christ. I've I am just aware this morning, maybe in a way that I've never been aware before, that I am a sinner and that I am guilty as charged. And that there is no way that I can come into your holy presence, into your holy heaven. I need a Savior, and I know that that Savior is Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, who took my sin, who paid its penalty absorbing the wrath of God for me. And here I am broken and guilty, but I am I'm calling out to you to save even me through the person of your Son. Save even me. In Jesus' name, amen.